Ephesians 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Some of you have asked if I got LASIK surgery or if I... I'm wearing contacts. No, uh, I decided at the beach baptism to donate my glasses to a nearsighted sea urchin. He is doing very well now, so he's able to evade all the predators a little bit better. But I lost them in the uh, in the the waves. So, for more whales of a tale, come tonight to hear Eric talk about Jonah. So, at least I didn't get swallowed by a, a big fish. So, all right, Ephesians four. We've been learning about walking in the riches of God's grace. Oh, I should warn you, save, like put something in Psalm 68, because we're going to be referencing back to Psalm 68 quite a bit this morning. So, Psalm 68. In the first three chapters, though, of Ephesians, we learned about the riches that we have in Christ. If you're in Christ, if you've repented of your sins and put your trust in Christ, you're in Christ, and you have these awesome riches. We learned about that in the first three chapters. Well, now, Paul, starting in chapter 4, is teaching us how to live like those who have such awesome riches. And living like those who have such awesome riches starts by thinking like Jesus did. Lowliness, meekness, with long-suffering. That's our first worthy response to all that God has done for us. We need that kind of mindset because God makes every one of us, every believer, a part of his family. And based on that common ground that all genuine believers embraced, we studied that last week, what that common ground is, based on that, we're all unified. But being unified does not make us identical. We may share together the view that we have the same hope of our calling, but we are still individuals who each have different gifts from Jesus. Using those gifts to serve our family is our second worthy response to all God has done for us. And we're going to start looking at that this morning. So chapter 4, verse 7. It says, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore, he says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And yes, the bulletin says verse 11, but we're not going to get there this morning. So we start here in verse 7 with this transitional word, but. In other words, uh, we have a marker of contrast to the unity that Paul has been teaching us about. So in verse 7, Paul's going to move from discussing the church as a whole to discussing each individual within the church. And so while we are one body under one Lord, we are not identical people with identical job assignments from God. And so Paul is going to begin taking us on this circular journey. It's going to, it started with our unity. We've been talking about that, how we're to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, right? And the unity we have is based on this common ground that we all believe, right? So that's our starting point. But now Paul's going to teach us how we grow in Christ individually so that we can become faithful to our individual callings from God. And when each individual in the church is faithfully using their gifts from God, that results in verse 16, which says that every joint, everyone's connected the way they're supposed to be, supplying the body with what it, all that it needs so it can increase and edify itself in love. 
So we're, we're on this journey. We started with unity. We're going to get to individuality. We're going to end with unity again, okay? So that's the journey we're on over the next few Bible studies in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to learn what it means to be a church where everyone is connected properly to each other so that the entire church is healthy. This shows us that individuality is not opposed to unity, nor does unity stifle individuality. Rather, through having the mind of Christ, thinking like Jesus, both individuality and the whole flourishes in a healthy way. All right? So, that's where we start with this contrast. But, unto each one of us, every one of us, is given the grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. We learn here, first off, that our individual assignments from God are appointments. Your job in the church is an appointment. It's not something you take to yourself. Now, there's nothing wrong with desiring to be used by God, but you and I cannot have selfish ambition towards any gift. It doesn't work that way. It's not about moving up the ladder. I'm putting in my time in children's ministry so someday I can teach a Bible study or lead a home group or be the pastor, be Pastor Will's replacement. That's not how it works. Remember, we started off our study in Ephesians 4 with being lowly, being meek, right? My brothers and sisters in Christ do indeed need me, but it's not because I'm better than others. They need me because my job assignment from God is important. Now, how does Jesus give us these gifts? It says that it's given to each one of us. He gives us the grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And you might be saying, well, the grace, there's no the in my Bible, Pastor Will. Yes, that's because it's not translated correctly. The grace, according to the measure of the gift of Christ. There's a reason those definite articles are there in the original language, because the idea is that it's the same unmerited favor from Jesus that saved me is the one that enables me to be used by God. It's the same unmerited favor Paul talks about this in his own experience in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I know I've quoted this, this a lot uh, in the last few studies in Ephesians, but it is because Paul understood this himself. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 12, he says, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. He says in verse 14, and the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. So how could Paul be selected to be the apostle to the Gentiles? Christ did it by his grace. It was undeserved. He just lavished that gift upon him because he's gracious. He counted him faithful, right? He enabled him to do this. None of this was because, you know, well, Paul was a rabbi of the rabbis and he understood no. In fact, he went to the group that was totally opposite from that. He went to the Gentiles, It's always a funny thing when Paul the Apostle shows up to your Gentile meeting. You're like, your people hate us. You're like, you Pharisees, they don't even want to come near us. You get anywhere near us and you shake the dust off because you you worry that we might have got some of our dust on you. He's like, yep, here I am. (laughs) That's me. That's who I was. And Jesus, by his grace, has called me to minister to you. You see, Jesus doesn't give us our specific job assignments in his family because we're the most qualified or the most skilled for that job. He doesn't give us our specific job assignments in his family because we've earned them by being godly enough. He puts us into that role and he enables us to do that job all by his abounding grace. All by his abounding grace. It is 
very easy to look at someone else who's serving and think, well, I could do better than they, they can at that. I can do a better job than they're doing. But they're not doing it because they can do it better. They're doing it is because that's what God chose them for. That's what He called them to do. Have you ever considered what gives God the most glory? I remember I got saved in a big, huge church, and most of my family got saved in that church. And, and um, there came a point in time where my parents decided, hey, the, the church is, we're not getting plugged in real well, it's too big. And, and I'm saying that big churches are bad, that's not my point. Small churches are good, that's not my point. But they decided to go to a teeny tiny church. And so they had some friends who were going there, and it was a really good church. But it was a small church, and and for whatever reason, that little tiny church had a lot of people that God ended up calling to do like pastoral or or ministry or music ministry or something in very visible positions in the body of Christ. And so my youth group, a lot of those people came from that youth group, and it was always weird because I did not stand out in that youth group. And so when God called me to the ministry, I remember telling the Lord, I say, "You've, you've got the wrong address. Like, and I was able to list off four or five other people that were very gifted and very talented, and I thought, well, they're the ones you should be calling to this. But have you ever considered what brings God the most glory? It certainly wouldn't be choosing the obvious person for a job. It would be the one where everyone says, that has to be Jesus, because there's no way that person could be that good at that job on their own. That's often why he picks who he picks. I remember being in my room, I was fasting and praying after I'd kind of come to terms that maybe God was calling me to full-time ministry as a, a pastor. And, and I, I get distracted real easily, so I had the lights off, so you know, I couldn't see my Bible or anything, but I had been reading throughout most of the day. And I still remember looking over the clock, I remember exactly what time it was when God called me to be a pastor. And because I was praying, and as I was praying, the Lord brought to my memory 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I was telling the Lord, I said, Lord, I'm not qualified for this. I'm not the right person for the job. And and when the Lord said, well, can can you be weak? Can you be not, can you be not mighty? Can you be not noble? Can you be not wise? I thought, I'm really good at all those three things. Well, those are my requirements. Because later it says that no flesh may glory in his presence. You say, that's all Jesus, man. Lowly, meek, patient. That's our mindset towards the gifts that God gives to us and gives to others. Patience, because we're being patient with someone as they learn to follow the Lord in their assigned task. Lowly and meek as I focus on being faithful to the task God's assigned to me, rather than looking at all the things I think I could do better than others with their assigned task. It's given according to the grace, and it's according to the measure of the gift of Christ. In other words, how much grace we receive to serve is equal to how much grace is needed to exercise the gift Jesus gives to us. In other words, whatever God calls me to do, God will grant me the grace to accomplish it. So not only do, am I called just out of grace, it's just his goodness, not because I've earned it or because I'm the best for the job, but then if he calls me to something, you say, well, I'm not the best for the job, and he goes, that's okay. My grace is sufficient for you. I will help you to do this job. I'll do it through you. 
So that means you and I can never say, well, I can't do the job you've assigned to me, God. Truth is, none of us can. But God gives us enough grace to do whatever He calls us to do. Amen? This is also why it's absurd to be proud of God's anointing on your life. Well, I just, I just, you know, I know things, or I see things, or I have an anointing from God. What you're really saying when you say something like that is, well, having a lot of grace means simply that you're even less capable of doing your assigned task than others. Well, I've got a special anointing from God. Wow, you're really messed up. Like you needed like super grace because you just got nothing in the tank. Seriously, it's absurd to ever brag about an anointing we receive from God or a gifting we receive from God. Paul talked about this truth in his own gifting from God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he talks about these visions he received, how he actually went to heaven and saw heaven, and he's been given abundance of revelations. I mean, he wrote a large portion of the New Testament, and then he explains what came with it. He says, and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Paul's like, I got, I got an amazing gift from God. God, in, in his grace, he chose me to be the apostle of the Gentiles. He empowered me to do this job. And just to make sure I didn't get proud and think it was me, he allowed Satan to come and to beat me up from time to time. People forget about that when they want the high anointing and calling of God. I want to reach all these people. Yeah, I will reach the wife that needs you right now that you're ignoring. Then maybe think about a larger circle. Too often we're focused on how being big for God, you know, and the Lord's saying, just, can you just be big for your spouse? And then if we get opportunities to maybe have an increased influence of how many people we get to influence, we forget what comes with it. The beating up of Satan, lest you be exalted above measure. Paul says, I'm messed up, man. <laughs> My pride, even after all these years, it's all right there. And so you know what happens? God leaves me out hanging on to a piece of wood in the middle of the ocean because my ship got wrecked again. You sit there out in the ocean. How smart you think you are now, Paul? Not very. God is just hoping I don't die out here. Hoping I'm not shark food. Got any one of them fish like Jonah got to experience? Spit me up on shore, save me the time. No, he had no answers. He had to trust the Lord. And every time Paul came to the Lord, he said, Lord, take this away. The Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, my weaknesses, that the power of Christ might rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake, because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. He says, I take it all, because I need it to keep me humble and to get me out of the way. That's lowly. <laughs> That's meek. It's like Jesus. And so I ask you this morning, do you have Christ's mindset when it comes, when it concerns you know, your gifts from God and the job that Jesus has assigned to you in his family? Or 
do you think you're better than others? Or conversely, do you hold back from fulfilling your job assignment because you think you'll do it poorly? I know so many people who never enter into the calling that God's given to them because they, well, I just don't think I'll do very good. They never take that step of faith. I want to share with you something that Harry Ironside said. It's awesome. He says, no matter how feeble, how insignificant, how relatively unknown a believer may be, they have received something from the risen Lord for the help of all the rest. Isn't that cool? Like when you put it that way, it kind of you know, has some bearing to it. It gives you like some sense of responsibility. Like, I'm, yes, sir, I'm important. Because the tendency is, is we sometimes we kind of have that idea that Jesus is just like the toy maker out there. And he's like, yeah, gifts for you. You get a gift. You get a gift. You get a gift. We kind of get that idea that he's just that when, when in reality he's the risen Lord who conquered death. It's when Jesus says, hey, I want you to go be this. You know, we're not going to get into individual giftings today, but there are certain gifts that can operate in lots of different ways. God says, I've given you a gift to teach. You say, I don't ever want to speak in front of somebody. That's fine. I just want you to speak to individuals, though. When you're talking with them and you get an opportunity to share about what you've been learning in the Word, they're going to understand it better, and it's going to encourage them to, to walk it out. Will you do that for me? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I'd be good at it, whatever. On the other hand, it's like, hey, your risen Lord is speaking, and he's got a gift for you. Yes, sir. Where am I going? That's who's called us to this. Every person in the body of Christ, no matter how feeble or insignificant or how relatively unknown, has received something from the risen Lord for the help of all the rest. Now, it can be very tempting to think that somehow that truth doesn't apply to you. I know that because sometimes I think it doesn't apply to me. I think, oh God, I'm not the right person for the job. Someone else would do this better. Or I'm not doing very well at this. It can be very tempting to think that somehow this truth doesn't apply to you. Either that you think you're more important than others or that you think you're not as important as others. But Paul, he, he says this here to us, and then he's going to say it again, but in a different way. He's going to reiterate this truth that Jesus has given to every one of us. If you're in Christ today, you're born again, then you have received gifts from Jesus. And he's going to reiterate it now by quoting in verse 8 from the Old Testament, showing us that the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would do that. For in verse 8, he says, wherefore... He says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Wherefore means for this reason. In other words, the truth is in verse 7. And to every one of us is given the grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. All of you. No one's exempt from that. For this reason, the Old Testament had told us about it before it happened. Wherefore, he says... Wherefore, because Jesus has given each of us gifts to fulfill our job assignment from God, we should expect to see that predicted in the Old Testament, and Paul says it was. And here's where Paul is referencing Psalm 68. In other words, Paul's statement in verse 7 should not be new news to us. It shouldn't surprise us, because the Bible taught this truth about the Messiah way back in Psalm 68. Now, 
I don't think Paul quotes Psalm 68 directly here. If you have it in italics in your, your Bible, that's fine. I don't think it's a direct quote. I think he's referencing it. I think he's summing it up personally because it doesn't read exactly like Psalm 68, 18. In fact, it seems to sum up Psalm 68, 18 and verse 19. It's not worded like either verse. Now, what is Psalm 68? Well, let's turn there and we'll examine the section of it that Paul quotes. But to give you a rundown, Psalm 68 is a messianic psalm calling for God to rise up and to rescue Israel. David wrote it, and the psalm expresses his desire for the Messiah to come. Yes, I'm king and things are good, but they're not as good as they can be. He wants Jesus to come. He wants the Messiah to come. And he compares the future coming of the Messiah to when God led Israel through the desert and into the promised land. He talks about how God came down his presence in the cloud on Mount Sinai and how it guided Israel through the desert and into the promised land. He explains all this and then he says, one even might say Psalm 68 is a do it again psalm. Lord, your presence came to lead us before in the desert and into the promised land. Do it again, Lord. Come down again in your presence. Send the Messiah And then as David is recounting what God did for Israel in the desert, he foresees in this song the victorious Messiah standing on Mount Zion. So verse 15 in Psalm 68 is where we start getting to Paul's idea, the context. He says, the hill or the mountain of God, David says this, verse 15, Psalm 68, the hill or the mountain of God is as the hill of Bashan, a high hill as the hill of Bashan. The idea is the hill of the Lord here referring to Mount Zion in Israel, where the Messiah is going to, he sees the Messiah coming to rule. He'll say that in a second. He says that that's like the hills of Bashan. Now, if you ever go to Israel, if you've been to Israel, the Bashan is the, the area close to the Golan Heights. It's, it's, it's just, you, you go in Galilee and it's, it's all in a valley. And then you see the, on the other side of the Gal- Sea of Galilee, you see the mountains begin rising up. There's like five or six fingers of, of foothills, mountains really that go out there. Mount Zion's nowhere near the height of that. But he's saying that it's the hill of God is like those hills of Bashan. A high hill is the hill of Bashan. And then in verse 16, he says, why do you leap, you high hills? In other words, why are you all jealous and upset and moving around, you hills of Bashan? Because this is the hill which God desires to dwell in, Mount Zion. Yea, the Lord will dwell in it forever. So he's using pictorial language. You know, these mountains of Bashan are huge and big, and they're all jealous because Jesus is standing in the, this little tiny mountain, Mount Zion, you know, in, in Jerusalem. And he says, why are you jealous? This is where God's picked to be. And he will stay there forever. He's going to rule there forever. Verse 17, the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. So again, he's foreseeing the presence of the Lord coming down, the Messiah coming, and he's got his angelic warriors with him, and he's going to reign. Verse 18, here's where we get to our reference. Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive, referring to the Lord. You have received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord might dwell among them. Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with benefits, even the God of our salvation. Now, the reason I say this is not a direct quote is because when you read what Paul wrote in verse 8 of Ephesians, it doesn't It doesn't read exactly like verse 18 or verse 19. However, all the components of verse 18 and 19 are in his summary statement here in verse 8. 
So the idea is David foresees the Messiah standing in Mount Zion, receiving gifts from all men, even those who at one time were fighting against him, who were the rebels. And then he foresees the Messiah dwelling with all mankind as their gracious king, who also gives gifts to his subjects each day. What David is foreseeing is the millennial kingdom, right? That's what he's foreseeing. So Paul, he doesn't quote it directly, but he applies it to a time that David isn't looking at. He applies this, these verses to a time before Jesus' millennial reign, before he returns to rule. He says in verse 8 that our king started giving out gifts the moment he ascended to heaven. Now, Paul realizes that this explanation is a bit different than what David envisioned in Psalm 68 when he wrote it. That's not weird. There's lots of things that the prophets wrote that they didn't fully understand when they were writing them. We read about that, I believe, in 2 Peter when it says they earnestly desired to look into those prophecies to understand what time Christ would come and what kind of manner His coming would be. They didn't fully understand it. And so in the New Testament, we get a fuller picture, a bigger picture. And so Paul is going to explain how he understands David when we get to verses 9 and 10 of Ephesians 4. But before we cover that, we need to look at all the parts of Psalm 68, 18, and 19 that Paul references here. He starts off by saying, when he ascends up on high. And this is already why I say it's not a direct quote. There's no word when in uh, 68, 18. But he says, when he ascends up on high, this word that Paul uses here for high is different than a location on earth. It means a location that's higher than the earth. It's almost always associated in the scripture with supernatural beings where they dwell. So he's referring to Jesus' ascension into heaven, right? That's what he has to be referring to. So while David had in mind the Messiah entering our world to rule and reign from the little hill of Mount Zion, even though it's big because God picked it, Paul's words show that this prophecy of David had a dual fulfillment. Even though Mount Zion is nowhere near as tall as the mountains of Bashan, that hill is more glorious because God chose to reign from there. But Paul also sees this as being fulfilled in Jesus' ascension to heaven. Now, heaven is also described as God's mountain. It's not described as Mount Zion. It's described as God's mountain, which I think is interesting because in Psalm 68, David doesn't call it Mount Zion. He calls it the mountain of God, which means it can have a dual fulfillment. In Ezekiel 28, 14 and Isaiah 14, 13, these are just two passages that refer to Satan before he fell. And it mentions how he dwelt in the mount of God, served in the mount of God in heaven. So that's how Paul's seeing it. First off, when Jesus ascended up into heaven, He says, he led captivity captive. Now, this is a weird phrase. How do you lead captivity captive? Well, the word captivity refers to prisoners of war. So, it means to take prisoners of war captive. Why do you take prisoners of war captive? Well, first off, there's some debate about who the prisoners of war are. Some suggest that This is referring to the Old Testament believers, that every believer who died before the cross was a prisoner of war. The idea was that in the war between us and the enemy, we lost, right? Yes, Adam failed, and therefore all of us are born in sin, right? We lost dominion, we gave it over to the enemy, right? Like we understand that. 
And so the idea is that we were prisoners of Old Testament believers were saved, but they were prisoners of war. And so they were in a holding place is the idea. They were in this holding place until the cross. They, they didn't go to hell, but when they died, they couldn't go to heaven because their sins hadn't been paid for yet. They were captive. So this is one view that's out there. For example, in Luke chapter 4, 18, Jesus says part of the Messiah's job is to rescue the prisoners of war. And so they would say, well, that's what Jesus did. When he died for our sins on the cross and he rose from the dead, he led all those Old Testament believers into heaven. There are some challenges with that. Jesus did not say in Luke 4, 18 that the Messiah took captives and then made him his captives. Jesus does not say that. It says he rescued and set free those who were captives. So, there is another view out there. Others suggest this refers to what Paul taught in Colossians 2.15. So, if you want to turn to Colossians 2.15, I'd like to read it and then examine it. In Colossians 2.15, and I've got to get moving. In 2.14, actually, talking about the work of Jesus on the cross, it describes his work with two results. Verse 14 says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. So when Jesus died on the cross, it says that all, every condemnation against us, all our guilt, all those things we sung about, right? He was the solution for that. He rescued us from our sin, right? But then it says his cross accomplished something else. Verse 15, and having spoiled principalities and powers, referring to the angelic beings, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it, in the cross. So, this idea of to make a show of, that phrase refers to a triumphant general who is leading his captured enemies as prisoners of war in a victory procession. The idea is that you would capture the conquered general and the defeated army, and you would lead them in chains in a victory procession. And at the end of the victory procession, you would put your foot upon the enemy general's neck because you have all authority. He is totally defeated. That's what this word to make a show of means. That's what Jesus did to our enemy. Jesus did this to Satan and to his angels on the cross, destroying their power in the realm of death. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it tells us those exact words. For as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, Jesus, he also himself, likewise took part of the same. He became a man. That through death, through his death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And of course, in Revelation 1.18, John sees Jesus holding what? The keys of death and the grave, of death and Hades, right? So, which view is correct? Well, for years I taught that Jesus went into the holding place, and after explaining what he did for them on the cross, he led them free from death and took them to heaven. I always thought that 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 and 19 kind of backed me up, which mentions that after Jesus went to the cross that he went into the prison and preached to the spirits down there. And so I kind of thought that backed me up. I am less certain that's correct now. And I worry that viewpoint kind of adds to Paul's words, puts something there that he's not talking about. The word for spirits in 1 Peter 3.19 is almost always used of fallen angels, not referring to Old Testament believers. 
And so I lean more towards the other view that the captivity captive refers to the devil and his angels because I'm not a captive now. I've been set free. Now, what I do know for sure is that whether it refers to Jesus leading the Old Testament believers to heaven or after he took the enemy captive, either way, it says at the end, he gave gifts to men. That's the point. The point is that when he finished this, he gave gifts to the New Testament believers, to you and to me. And that's the part that reads a little differently than what David said. And so Paul's going to explain how he understands David's words in verse 9. Because if you read it exactly in Psalm 8, 18, 68, 18, what does it say? He, does he give gifts to men? It says he receives gifts among men. Well, there's a big difference between being the giver and being the receiver. So Paul explains. Now, verse 9. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. Paul says, listen, Jesus could not ascend to heaven if something else didn't happen first. He had to descend somewhere first to the lower parts of the earth. Now, this is the part where lower parts, people go, well, see, that's going into the grave. That's going into the holding place. The problem is, is that the gender of the word lower does not agree with of the earth. It agrees with he that ascends. So when we talk about lower, it's not lower than the earth. It's lower than where he ascended from, which is earth. (laughs) And so the idea here is that then descended refers to the incarnation. The idea that Jesus stepped out of heaven and became a man. He that ascended first descended. He that entered back into heaven at one point left it and came to the earth. So is it possible that this text refers to Jesus descending into the grave to preach the good news to the Old Testament saints? Could be. That's how I taught it for years. But I have my concerns with that. The cool part is, is whatever, however you interpret it, it doesn't change the meaning. I do think that the view that Jesus goes into the grave meanders from the text a bit. Because the focus of the text isn't what Jesus did for the Old Testament saints here. The focus of the text is what Jesus did for us. He gave gifts to us. What Jesus did through the incarnation, through the cross, and defeating the enemy made it possible for him to daily give us benefits, which is what Psalm 68, 19 says. Psalm 68, 19 says, blessed be the God who daily loads us with benefits, even the God of our salvation. And that's what Paul's talking about here. And so this is why it's not a, I don't, I don't think it can be a direct quote because if it's a direct quote, it contradicts what Psalm 68, 19, 18 and 19 says. Jesus says he didn't receive gifts, not until verse 19, uh, not didn't give gifts until verse 19. So I think Paul's just summing things up in those verses. And so verse 10 explains, he that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens. Jesus, when he ascended up in Acts chapter 1, he didn't just float into the sky and get aboard Air Force One and keep going. He didn't just float into outer space, you know, and he's out there somewhere, you know, another satellite. He re-entered the heaven where God dwells and he entered it victorious. He entered his home before he became a man. And he did it that he might fill all things, which is what we read at the end of Psalm 68, 18. 
His victory over sin and the enemy make it possible for God to be in our midst now, even though we don't see his kingdom on earth yet. How? We already learned about it in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, when Paul is sharing this prayer, he prays. He prays that we would know the power of God that's directed towards us. Verse 19, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe? Well, what kind of power does God have towards us? Well, it's according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named. And then here it is. Here's where Paul sees the dual fulfillment, not only in this world, but also in the world which is to come. So Jesus is reigning over our lives now. His presence is in the midst of all mankind now. How? We keep reading. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all, that he might fill all things. That's the same thing. So Jesus' presence among men is realized through you and me. It's realized through the church. That's why he gave us gifts. So when people look and they go, well, there's something different about you. And it's not just something different about us because, well, we don't smoke or we don't chew or date girls that do. I I don't even know if that applies these days, but the idea is that people aren't just going to see something different because, because we don't do certain things and we do do other things. That's, Mormons do that too. Jehovah's Witnesses do that too. There are other religious people that do that too. What's different about us is we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Jesus is living inside of us. We are different. Not because we're better than anybody, but because Jesus has supernaturally given us gifts by his grace. And when we use them faithfully, people go, that's something that's out of this world. And they see Christ in us. And so Paul explains that Psalm 68, 18, and 19 have a dual fulfillment. We see the one now in Jesus' ascension to heaven, and then we'll see it a second time when Jesus returns in glory to reign. And so because of the first fulfillment's already happened, now all kinds of men, even the worst kind of rebels, can bring their lives to Jesus as a gift. And you know what? He receives them. He dwells in their midst and in his kindness, then he gives gifts back in his grace. Which brings us right back to where we started our study in verse seven. The gifts Jesus gives us are based on his victory, not because we earned them or we're so spiritual. They are given based on his victory and they are given to all who come to him, even those who are the worst rebels, amen? That means Jesus can use you. He can use me. Now, Paul's goal in this letter is not to give an exhaustive list of every gift Jesus can give to us. In fact, Paul's only gonna zero in on four specific gifts that Jesus gave to his church when he gives a list in verse 11. But the idea that we need to understand before we begin exploring the specific gifts that God gives to us is this simple truth. We must never forget that all of this was made possible because of the incarnation and because of the cross. What Jesus did for us by paying for our sins and how he defeated our enemy. 
And that's why I lean towards that other view of these verses, even though I'm not sure if I'm fully correct. I lean that way because that seems to be the the vibe, that seems to be the idea that Paul's trying to convey to us in these verses. That because of the new covenant we have in Christ, that Jesus won for us through his shed blood, that's what makes all these things possible. And so that's why we're commanded to regularly celebrate the Lord's Supper. As the worship team comes on up, you know, we're gonna have time to sing and then we're gonna have the elements. If you don't have them, the ushers will be coming through the aisles in a second. You can just wave them down and get one from them. But we have the bread and we drink the cup. You know, as we are going to participate in that, this is where the unity and the individuality work together. When we, when we hold these items in our hands, we all hold the same things. We're unified, right? We all believe the same things. But we have individual things we need to talk about with the Lord as we together hold them. And so my encouragement to you this morning is as we sing and as we have a moment of quiet after we read the scripture, this is the time to remember his love for you, his lowliness, his meekness, his long-suffering attitude toward you. And then if there's anything that you've been holding back from him, to stop. (laughs) To say, Lord, If this is what you want me to do, I'll do it. Even if it's something maybe you don't want to do. Maybe God's called you to do something that's maybe out of your comfort zone. This is the time where you respond back to him and you say, Lord, I'll do what you're asking me to do. I don't think, you can say, tell him, I don't think I'm gonna do a good job at it, but I'm trusting that this is done by your grace and therefore you'll equip me to do it. That you call me by grace, that you'll equip me by your grace. Because of everything you've done, you can accept even this rebel's weakest offering and take it and use it for your glory. Amen? Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word, which just gives us that amazing contrast, Lord. You're so perfect. You're righteous. You did everything well. And yet, Lord, we are not, but you invite us to participate. You invite us to be the thing that you shine your presence through, the thing that you fill that everything might be full of your glory. So Lord, we don't wanna fail in that. We don't wanna be self-willed. We don't don't wanna be stubborn and say, well, I wanna do what they're doing. Like you told Peter, says, what does it concern you if, if I call him to do this? You follow me. Lord, you loved us first. We wanna love you back. And so as we remember your love for us now, as we sing of it and we meditate on it, remember your lowliness, your meekness, your patience, Lord, we make that fresh commitment to you to have that same mindset and to be obedient to you in Jesus' name, amen.